Welcome back to the Legends Podcast with me, Sarah Faruya of SF Creative and Sarah Faruya Coaching, where I am rising like a phoenix from the ashes after a one-year break to season seven, where our theme is Legends of Reinvention, Stories of Renaissance, and the Phoenix Rising from the Fire. I believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories. So let's get into these creative musings from Sarah and her guests. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome back to this, the Legends Podcast Season 7. And this season's theme is all about reinvention, renaissance, and the phoenix from the fire, or the flames, or the ashes. The phoenix from the fire rising and reinventing and having a renaissance in our lives. I have some incredible guests. My third guest of whom was the initial idea for this theme and who I think is really uh, an incredible phoenix who's risen again and again and again, an amazing entrepreneur. And my second guest will be an athlete and athletes, a professional athletes and professional athletes and sports people have to necessarily reinvent themselves. But my first guest, who we will talk to next week on the anniversary of my one year sobriety, which is what I will be talking about today, um, is my coach, Kath Elliott, my alcohol mindset coach, somebody who stewarded me through uh, my life-changing transition from a major league binge drinker into uh, somebody who is now completely sober and alcohol-free. What a year. So I believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them. And, you know, what is a legend? Many people might think, that person's not a legend who she has on or what exactly is a legend? Well, the dictionary definition of a legend is a traditional story, sometimes popularly regarded as historical, but not authenticated. So essentially, I want to tell the stories of people and the legends and commit them to legend. And by the time people start telling their stories to me, they've already become the stuff of myth and legend anyway. And I truly believe in the power of story, and that's why I will be telling my stories in between each guest this time round on season seven of the Legends podcast. Another definition is an extremely famous or notorious person, especially in a particular field. So Kath is a legend in the field of alcohol awareness and mindset and advocating for that, especially against the backdrop of breast cancer awareness. And this month is also breast cancer awareness month. And on my podcast next week, you can hear the reason why she is such a uh, fervent advocate for more knowledge and power around people understanding the link between breast cancer and alcohol. I'm not here to preach at all. I'm not here to convince or convert. But what I am proud of is the progress that I have gained over the last year and the knowledge and all the 
emotional and physical changes that I've had to go through during the last year and the awareness that it's brought to me and myself. And I say myself, I mean myself with a capital S there um, over the last year about who I am and in progress, I have absolutely no idea. I often describe myself as baby sober because I do think that people are always baby sober if they've had a problem with alcohol. So I'm in a reinvention phase and a renaissance phase. I feel like in terms of the phoenix from the fire metaphor, that I... I'm just like a little phoenix, you know, tap, 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 tapping on the egg right now in the in the embers and um, waiting to kind of rise. But I don't really know what that is yet. To some degree I do, but I have had to learn to slow down, lean out and really, really, really slow down. Like I I say to myself multiple times a day, slow down, slow down, slow down, as I was spinning out um, with my thoughts racing and concerns coming through because I've made some radical, radical changes on the back of my sobriety, on the back of my alcohol-free life this last year that have impacted my business, my relationships, my coaching. And I am yet to understand the full extent of what's coming next for me. And that trust in what comes next is for somebody like myself, who likes to have consensus reality really lined up quite quite nicely. Usually by this point in the year, my um, assistant, Laura, my, my admin manager, Laura, and I have got a date in the diary in November where we literally plan out every month of the next year. Last year, I already knew that things were going to be different this year. So what we did is we actually uh, just got my finances in order last November. The November before that, we planned an incredible year because we knew we were going to be celebrating 10 years in business last year um, on the 24th of October when I had a party, uh, I think on the 23rd of October 2022 to celebrate my 10-year anniversary in business. And that I knew, I knew, knew, knew that that party was going to be the last time that I drank and didn't address it in an official way. Um, and so I'm going to tell the story now of my drinking life and of my year of sobriety. And I am calling it sobriety for myself, even though I, I was a binge drinker. Um, as opposed to a full-blown alcoholic. And to anybody who's listening to this who is a full-blown day-drinking alcoholic, um, I I, ha I feel really emotional. I just give you a deep, deep, deep bow. And I hope that you can find your way out of it because it's so hard. It's so hard. And it's so secretive. And I see you and I feel you and I um I respect you so much and the the mess that you're in and it is a mess it's a mess 
binge drinking's bad enough, but it's not alcoholism. Um, so um, I want you to know that if you are a binge drinker, um, I really, really respect you. And I have a tremendous amount of love for you. And I see the mess you're in. Um, and I hope you're okay. But that's different to binge drinking. So before I get into it again, I want to be very clear. I'm not here to preach, convince or convert anybody. I'm just here to tell my story, to work my legend. And already I can't really remember one year ago what things were like. I think one year ago I can. And then I went home for Christmas uh, six weeks after giving up drinking. And that was really tough. So, you know, I, I will talk about that a bit more in a in a minute. Um, and then, you know, there have been parties, events, all kinds of events that I've had to go to in this new guise as a non-drinker, as an alcohol-free person, as a sober person. And it's been a real trip. Um, and you will hear next week when Kath speaks to us that, um, yeah, what it's like for us binge drinkers. There's a certain similarity to all binge drinking. I think there's usually some, there's usually some attachment to some kind of image around it, but there's also some kind of physical attachment and psychological attachment to it as well. That's my unqualified opinion. And I don't really want to have any more opinions about binge drinking or binge drinkers. Um, Kath will tell her stories next week. I'm telling my story in part next week on the podcast and in part today. Um, but in the meantime, I will be holding a vision for anybody out there who who wishes to change. I already hold a vision for my coaching clients and what they want to do and what they tell me they want to do. Um, I hold that vision really tight to my heart, no matter how long it takes them to to get to where they're going. And as I said, for for the people who are full blown alcoholics, who are in the middle of the the mess of that, I hold a vision for you so close to my heart that you can find your way inside that or find your way out of it, however long it takes you. And I hold you and your commitment to to that in in my heart and and also the commitment it takes to uphold an addiction that way any addiction um and i hope you can find your way into it and out of it um and i hold that vision for you too so first of all i would just like to read here the um this is the uh, national institute on alcohol abuse and alcoholism um nih.gov definition, very quick definition of binge drinking. So in terms of the science, it's a pattern of drinking that brings blood alcohol concentration to 0.08 grams per deciliter or more. So 0.08% or more. And what that means is for women, that's typically four drinks four plus drinks or for men, five plus drinks in about two hours. And I believe that four plus drinks is, I think one drink is considered one half a pint of normal 
like 4% beer or a small glass of wine. So usually there's six glasses of wine in a, in a uh, bottle of wine. But the way that we drink these days, I would say that there's probably three or four glasses of wine in a bottle of wine. Now, if I was to tell you that I was probably drinking that regularly, four plus drinks, eight, maybe 10, at least a normal night of drinking for me would be a bottle of wine. And that's six drink. That would be six units, six drinks. Um, and the other thing to note is that um, binge drinking is defined again as consuming five or more drinks on an occasion for men or four or more drinks on occasion for women. This is the CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention in uh, America. And it says here, most people who binge drink are not dependent on alcohol. So that would be for me. I wasn't dependent on alcohol, although you will hear from my story that there was some dependence on alcohol for me from a psychological perspective. And I will disclose now that I have ADHD and it became very, very apparent to me in the last three years as my hormone levels started to change radically that the ADHD started coming through in a far, far more uh, apparent way. And what I then realized was that my ADHD had a scaffolding of normal hormones during my fertile years. So a normal level of hormones on a cycle, of course, on a monthly cycle. Plus self-medication through drinking. And that is the key for me. That's when the penny dropped for me is when I was interviewing Kate Kamoshita last year, who is an ADHD educator and specialist and also has ADHD herself. She's about eight years sober now. And she talked extensively about how she had been medicating, self-medicating using alcohol and how many people who have ADHD self-medicate for alcohol. And I started to really examined that inside myself in a really, really honest and true way and thought, yeah, this is me. So many of the things that she had said had made such sense to me. And um, I've given myself one year to get sober and to see how that impacts the way that ADHD is for me, my executive functions, my working memory, and what's happened is it's become rife and rampant. <laughs> and actually the alcohol was the scaffolding, but the payoff is absolutely not worth it. Absolutely not worth it. So my next step after some other steps around my current life change at 52 years old, of course, I'm a, a woman of that age who's going through her menopause time, the change move into eldership in my community and in my own body. And um, I wanted to give myself one year alcohol free and one year to see how my how that affected me physically and mentally and how that plays against my changing hormone levels before getting my diagnosis. Because it could have been that stopping drinking actually had a positive impact on the ADHD. But what's actually happened is it has had a positive impact, but my, my mind is, is uh, 
my executive functions are are really wild. <laughs> and my thoughts race as, as much as ever. But now at least I have a, a really pure sense of my psyche and I can really observe how I um, behave um, and my poor behaviors and so on and triggered behaviors that aren't related to alcohol. And in the run-up to me giving up alcohol, um, some of my behaviours were out of control. So that's just a little piece here. I'm holding vision for anybody who wants to change their relationship to alcohol. I'm holding a vision for the people who are in the shit, hot, steaming, garbage dump eye of the storm of... Um, depend alcohol dependency all day every day and I am not here to preach convince or convert next week you are going to be introduced to the person who stewarded me through the first five months of my journey and who I absolutely adore and who is a, a fantastic eloquent speaker on this topic and who will share her stories so now um I want to talk to you about how I am now and what I've done in the last year. So it's one year, one year since I stopped drinking, one year since the day after my um, one year party, when I observed myself drinking as everybody else had gone to bed. And I knew that the next day I would have a hangover and I would get on the phone to this woman, Kath, and I would start telling the truth to one person in NDA. And I think that's the most important thing is to tell the truth. Um, as I've said, alcohol was the scaffolding that really held my kind of fragile psyche in place and my ADHD in place. Um, but it just wasn't, it wasn't working for me anymore. So I would say the first three months were hard, hard, hard work. The first month wasn't too bad because, you know, I've done things like dry January before or taken extended breaks like four to six weeks. Once I even did like three months. I didn't do a full three months. That was when I was really in uh, the, the coaching way of being like, how can I be the most uh, amazing that I can be? Let's see three weeks off the three months off the alcohol. Let's see how much of a badass I can be. Um but interestingly, I just found myself really, really tired and and so on. Of course, my body was trying really hard to kind of get through it. But because I knew that I would start drinking again, the same kind of psychological um, maelstrom didn't happen as when I just gave up for good and started to tell the truth and started to talk about my history with alcohol and why and all the feelings that I was having and it was really a really interesting journey. So the first three months of coaching with Kath were really taken up by um, downloading. I made a firm commitment to her to tell the truth about every single thing that I was ashamed of and every incident I could think. She was getting emails from me that were like, you'd have to keep, you'd get RSI from scrolling through them because I'd put bullet points in. I tried to go all the way back to when I first started drinking when I was 14. The first time I got really, really drunk, I was 14. And I was 
uh, you know, I was, I was really downloading to her and I knew she'd be able to hold it because that's her job and she's a professional. And the, there was just so much shame around that. And I just wanted to, to download it to somebody who I knew could hold it and it was their job and who also understood it at a depth and a level that was intellectual, that was trained, that was psychologically capable, um, that was scientifically informed and that was, um, um, you know, that that's her job and she has techniques and everything. And she could normalize all of this for me as well. You know, although binge drinking in our society and especially she's an Aussie, especially in Aussie and British societies, but I would argue in Japan society as well. And also I'd say in American society, people say that it is to a lesser degree, but uh, I suppose it is to a lesser degree, but it's still there, you know, chug it, chug it, chug it, chug it, all that kind of stuff or going out and get, getting cocktails on a Friday night. They call it cocktails. We'd say like going to the pub or getting pissed or whatever it's very normalized it's very normalized in british culture in the uh japanese um society as well in the in the british community the whole thing is very very normalized but there's nothing normal about it it's not it's not a behavior that i would describe as normal as say i'm not here to preach but i've just started I, you know i started to realize this is not normal this is not it, it for me anyway it just wasn't normal so the first three months, I Kath sent me three books that she thought would be really good for me. And the first three months was just me kind of starting to get really, really honest about it, sending her bullet point after bullet point after bullet point of things I was ashamed of, behaviors, physical things that had happened to me, stupid things that I'd done, stupid things that I'd said every time I blacked out, um, times I'd gone to hospital, times that I had put myself in serious danger, um, times that I jeopardized my status, um, times that I'd upset my husband, um, and all that good stuff. I just downloaded, downloaded, downloaded. And every time, if I thought that I had forgotten something, I would email her again. I've just remembered another thing. I don't even care if she read it or not. I don't care if she read it or not. And she is so welcome if she's listening to this to use that. <laughs> um, she sent me three books and the first book was called Blackout. And this is a memoir by a woman called Sarah Hepola. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I hope I am Hepola. And um, it was, you know, for Sarah Hepola, alcohol was like gasoline, the gasoline of all adventure. Oh, yeah. Everything, like every single thing that I did revolved around drinking. Everything. Even though it didn't look like it, it always did. I just couldn't wait. And I was always planning my drinks, what I was going to have to drink and stuff like that. Wine time and all that kind of stuff. Um, drinking felt like freedom, correct? Part of her birthright as a strong, enlightened 21st century woman. Yeah. <laughs> yes to all of that, but there was a price. She often blacked out, waking up with a blank space where four hours should be. Mornings be became detective work on her own life. What did I say last night? Who was that guy? Where am I? There's only been one guy for, in my life for the last 21 years, but yeah, that was always detective work. And also the hangovers were 
unmanageable. So that was the first book that I read. Uh, I read it straight away. And yeah, there's such a similarity um, between um, binge drinkers, I believe, I believe. And I've said that to Kath as well, because her story is so similar to mine. There's this combination of um, the feeling of release and relief that I would get from drinking like that first drink mm -mm. and then the second which gives you that same and then the third which is a maintenance drink after the third I think it's just it's just downhill I mean after when you get into your fourth drink you're in the binge drinking zone and um yeah but you know it, it's just very hard to articulate some of this stuff but anyway that this is um a great book. I really, I enjoyed drinking that. It didn't feel like it was preaching at me. And then her, her life became unmanageable as, uh, I wouldn't say my life became unmanageable, but my drinking became unmanageable. My life was still manageable, but the hangovers were unbearable, although they did help to temper the ADHD. But once my hormones started changing, it was just completely unmanageable. I didn't know what I was doing or where I was and I was just ruining I was ruining so many social occasions then the second book which I left at my mum's because I read it over Christmas was called Alcohol Explained and that was more like um, a very straightforward account of the impact it wasn't a memoir or a story or anything like that it's just a very straightforward account of the scientific impact that alcohol has on a body. And that was really useful, really, really useful for me to understand the great benefit of what I was doing, the great benefit to myself of what I was doing, and also to understand the great damage that I had been doing as well. Um, and it explained um how depressing alcohol can be and how you, the addiction is not only um, physical, but it's the addiction is to the feeling of the first drink and then the, um, the feeling of the second drink and trying to maintain that feeling of the first drink and the relief that you get from it. And I still really miss that. Actually, I'm going to be honest. I still really, really miss the feeling of relief. Last week for the first time in ages, I said to Keisuke, I really feel like drinking. And I could probably, I, I could probably have a glass of wine now without, um, without going, going nuts. But then by next weekend, I know it would be a bottle of wine. And it's just not worth it. It's not worth it for somebody who drinks the way I drink. It's not worth it for me um, to be that, to, to do that. And also to undo all the uh, internal inner work that I am doing, <laughs> necessarily doing. So back to the first three months. So I read this book, I read Alcohol Explained, and I went through a uh, a month, I'd spent maybe three weeks in England, including um, saying goodbye to my childhood home. So it was like my childhood home where my first 20 years were spent and where, you know, that desperate teenager who was looking for some kind of relief from this undiagnosed ADHD and some kind of relief from all the 
things that happen in a family around something like that and looking for a relief from the the self-loathing and the the difficulties of being that age and especially for somebody who had as big a character as I did and as big a body and as uh as 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 big an inner life a big emotional spiky full inner emotional life I can remember my dad telling me that I was very introspective and um but I was also a vibrant and a full person in the world but when I discovered drinking that gave me something else to be it gave me something to hook this enormous personality on this huge uh annoying person you know in the north of England big extroverted bright clever people with ambition and I mean I don't mean just quiet ambition I mean kind of outward ambition who wanted to be good at stuff but also wanted to be involved and belong you know not the number one you're not the number one person around people do try to kind of put you into a box any northerner will tell you that it's quite a British thing as well but uh you know and I and I can still see it now now I can see it with really clear eyes oh okay this is happening now and it exists inside me as well uh I think Glennon Doyle wrote an entire book about it called Untamed but um you know I wasn't palatable I was unpalatable to myself to the people around me and that all meted itself out in this beautiful house, this childhood home. And um, by the way, I remain unpalatable to a lot of people as well. But, you know, that's the that's that's the gamble. Right. <laughs> Luckily, I have terrific friends and uh, great support systems. And I also just have a really strong sense of myself that I'm very proud of that I invest in coaching and therapy as needed and medication as needed. Um, P.S. I'm not on any medication right now besides iron tablets because I'm severely anemic. I found out in the last year and I'll come to that uh, in a minute. And um, I'm on progesterone as well, which is a hormone that started to go seriously out of balance for me in this time in my female life. So another thing that came through for me very, very, very quickly was with the absence of alcohol, it revealed that I was in a lot of pain. Now I could have put that pain down to, um, drinking. I put that pain down to hangovers and I put that pain down to the fact that there was always alcohol in my body. Um, besides those like months here and there where I took time off, generally speaking, I would say I was binge drinking every three to four days. Um, I would say I would probably drink four times a week. And um, so not every night, you know, so I could still say, oh, no, I don't drink every night, which sounds terribly virtuous, doesn't it? No, I don't drink every night. But those three nights that I do drink, it'll be a bottle and a half of wine and then a generous measure of spirits to make sure that I go to bed uh, still, uh, you know, still going towards drink drunk. It's called completion. It's binge drinking. Binge drinking is basically that you cannot drink one drink without having to get to completion. I think that's my little little addition to that serious addition. Um, but actually what happened was um, come November, December, 
one month, one month and a half after I stopped drinking, um, my joint, I had knee pain like nothing else. My joints were really aching really badly, especially my hands and one of my knees and an ankle. And I started, so so instantly I went and started getting these physical symptoms seen too. And that's been one of the great gifts of the last year is dealing with physical symptoms one by one by one by one. And one of the physical symptoms, as I say, was my knees and my hands. So I got support for my hands um, and that's really helped. And I'm, I, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the alcohol was exacerbating it because it, it's starting to come through now in the winter, but it, it it's got better. And I haven't worn my support since spring, probably. And then the other thing that um, I did was um, this knee and my ankle. I got a lot of physiotherapy for that and exercises for that, which I can also do at home. So that's much, much better now as well. Although that has started to flare up in the last week, so I need to keep an eye on that. So that was interesting. Oh, look, physical symptoms are starting to come through, whereas before I was just writing them off as symptoms of hangovers. Um, another thing that happened was I was starting to feel really strongly the effects of hormones. And I decided to go and start seeing my gynecologist on a regular, regular, regular basis to get medicated. I wanted HRT, hormone replacement therapy, which loads of women of my age start to get to help them to manage their um, terrible, terrible moods. So I had two things happening at the same time. Uh, alcohol can really help you to manage mood as it happens as it happens, not the next day, because it will send you into a depression. It makes the depressions worse at the end of the day. Um, as the book alcohol explained, explained to me, but, um, yeah, I was able to, uh, go and get medicated around that. And then I had a blood test. I said, you know, I'm feeling quite weak and, uh, there are some symptoms that I'm a bit concerned that I might, um, be anemic. And she took blood and then two days later was like, you need to come in. And ever since then, I've been getting intravenous iron. <laughs> so actually kind of plug it in, uh, intravenous iron injected into me. And I take uh, prescription iron tablets every day and I feel so much better. So again, I put this, this, this fervor for looking after myself and looking after my body and dealing with symptoms as they come up step by step by step. And it's so much easier because I don't have hangovers. I don't need to manage around, oh, there's a big event on this day. So I need to be very careful about doing an early morning on that day. Like every event I know I can get to on time, leave on time. And I never, ever have a hangover. This is the miracle of miracles. So my Basically, my physical state is always the same besides the fact that I am severely anemic. I think that the threshold for a healthy amount of hemoglobin, or I think it's that anyway, was a 12 and I was a six. So the minimum was 12 to be healthy and I was on a six. And, you know, I was worried why, why I thought I was just really unhealthy or, you know, when I was drinking, I put it down to drinking that, um, you know, I was just going upstairs, I was getting out of breath or anything like that. And now since having like three or four IV um, injections of iron and taking iron every day, 
it's not a problem at all, at all. So I'm starting to feel really like I want to get more active. And that's a lovely, lovely side effect there as well. Um, and of course, because my heart's not trying to pump alcohol out through my liver and out of my body, my heart's going to be in a better condition as well. Um, yeah, so that that was the first three months was starting to get all that kind of stuff dealt with as well. And the next thing is after some physical um some physical things that need to be very seriously addressed before the end of 2023. I will also be addressing the ADHD, getting a diagnosis and maybe getting medicated because I want to be able to build my business back in a way that um, it feels um, in a way where I'm not just desperately trying to um, grab onto concentration when it arrives or hyper-focus when it arrives or good days when I'm able to not be very scattered. But again, since stopping drinking, I can say to myself, slow down, slow down, slow down. And then I just take one thought at a time. It's really interesting. So that's, that's some stuff there. And the next book that I read was... <laughs> Oh, you can understand why it wouldn't be this one first. It was called The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. And the the when I first received this, I just put it like I almost put it in the bin because I was like, I am not feeling any joy in this whatsoever. I was literally I was talking to Kath every two weeks and I was just crying. And when I was uh, back in the UK over Christmas, which just brought up so much stuff, you know, like family Christmases. I mean, if anything's going to bring up your stuff, it's family Christmases and family Christmases and the last Christmas in the old childhood home. So, you know, it's just full of all those kind of childhood ghosts. And um, also that, you know, there's this kind of tension because they're, you know, my mum and dad were moving out of their beloved home that had been their home for the last 40 years so it was really really tough on me and I was crying just relentlessly to Kath as all these feelings came up that alcohol had been able to um quell and give relief to and they came up and they came up and they came up. It was like tsunamis of feelings, tsunamis of emotions, tsunamis of memories. And we just dealt with them. We dealt with them. Kath always just brought me back to this is normal. This is quite, quite normal. The stuff you're talking about is quite normal. You know, she didn't try to do therapy or coach around anything that wasn't her area. She just kept coming back to how normal this was. Uh, because, you know, I'd become used to managing my emotions uh, and and giving myself relief by drinking. And it's brilliant for that, but not great. Anyway, so this one was great because it showed the descent from, um, yeah, it says here, ever sworn off alcohol for a month and found yourself drinking by the seventh? Yes. Uh, think there's no point in just one drink. Still, I I think what's the point if you're not going to go all in what's the point um because this woman here actually got into day drinking as well so she was on her way 
or was was in the functioning full-blown alcoholic phase but it, it doesn't end well that never ends well it does not end well if you continue in that vein so I know, and that's why I humbly honor people who are full-blown day-drinking alcoholics, secret drinkers, you know, wake up. I, I know my mum's, one of my mum's friends um, used to drink half a bottle of vodka before her husband woke up every morning and then finish it off during the day. Um, and interesting, she never would drink at parties. She would never drink. She would sit in the corner quietly because she couldn't handle it, but she would never drink at parties because she knew she knew that it would not it would not end well and that's one of the problem drinkers often have rules around alcohol and so not like rules like my dad has where he's like oh I can only have one or two drinks these days because I just feel so shit the next morning you know maybe it was when he was a younger man it might have been three drinks but now he's like even one drink makes me feel shit the next morning. Not rules like that, but rules like, oh, I only drink white spirits or um, I only drink mixers that have no sugar in them or, you know, um, uh, red wine is out for me, but white wine is in. Some people have real reasons why that's a thing for them. Like I know somebody who's uh, got a, a, a um, an allergy to tannins or something like that, but it's that kind of bargaining. My bargaining was that I would never drink when I was on duty. So if I was coaching, if I had a role, um, if I was in a work situation, I wouldn't drink. Or I would wait until such time when I knew that the switch wouldn't switch while I was in that. The switch for me was the switch to blackout or the switch to stupidity that switch kept creeping back and back and back into like one drink, two drink, three drinks. Yeah. So that's, um, and then after about six months, I started to feel better. So by the time I'd finished um, my co five months coaching with uh, Kath, I felt like I could graduate to a regular coach, but I also wanted a coach who was also a therapist because the um, feelings kept coming, right? So uh, I felt like I was in more of a stasis and that I was in a in a better place for the that first initial uh, recovery from binging time. And then I felt like I needed to talk about my business. The other thing that happened for me was, so that was last October. Um, my one-year programs finished at the end of February, kind of March, and a switch in me switched and said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to work with groups. So I had my February is the new January. I never copyrighted that, but I should, <laughs> lest it lest it get uh, uh, appropriated. But my February is the new January group is um a one-year program that loads of people have gone through and many people went through as repeaters. I loved it so much. And after I'd stopped drinking, I just was like, I, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. There's this kind of weird new integrity that came to the surface. I also had a, a small mastermind of really talented women who, um, everything from artists to like 
business owners to um, C-suite people, directors, um, board members, um, very, very intimate group of women called the Dream Weavers, which I just loved. It was such an incredible um, mastermind. But again, I had just lost, I lost my, I couldn't imagine how I was going to restart it. I couldn't imagine after like seven or eight years of running these programs, how I was going to start it. I was literally a different person, a different person. But I also um, love coaching so much that I wanted to continue doing one-on-one. So that's what I did, but I also didn't want to launch into an enormous marketing campaign. So with my marketing person, Ange, and my admin manager, Laura, we kind of planned, oh, let's launch uh, marketing for um, for like simply coaching, just one-to-one coaching. But I just, I just, as this new self, this new sober self kept emerging, I just couldn't. I just didn't want to market. I didn't want to market in that way. Um, I didn't want to be so visible. And I thought that I would kind of start something new. It's definitely by September, if not before then. I went away from June to July this year, had my first sober holiday with my girlfriends to Mallorca. That was fine. One of my other friends is sober as well. Um, Or she doesn't drink. She was never an alcoholic. Um. And it's fine. It's great. The greatest thing is I never have to worry about waking up. Never. I never, for the last 30 to 40 years, I've worried about waking up. I never have to worry about waking up and I never have to worry about going home. So life is just so much simpler and I never have to plan what I'm going to drink. Although I do have most nights one or two non-alcoholic beers just to satisfy that little a psychological switch that goes, oh, thank you for my my state-changing drink. And I love that. Klaus Thaler, I should get sponsored by them. Oh, maybe I will. Klaus Thaler is a delicious alternative to, and the other ones, the Asahi Suntory and uh, the other um, breweries in Japan all do pretty, you know, serviceable drinks. I like to have a lager and lime and so on. Um, but yeah, that really helps me is having those uh, non-alcoholic drinks. Um, so now here, one year after, yeah, I just started thinking, oh, I'd love to have a drink. Last week I did. But, you know, I'm really going through the change. So, I'm, But I'm not worried that I'm going to. I'm not concerned that I'll suddenly tuck into my husband collects whiskey and spirits. So we have about 50 bottles of spirits, including some rare whiskeys downstairs. I, and I'm never tempted by them ever. Um, if there's anything I'm tempted by, it would be a glass of red wine. That And I always smell it when we're out so that I can get the vibe from it, um, which is one of the delicious things about being a wine connoisseur, which I'm most certainly not. <laughs> I was a wine drinker, but not an expert. Um is uh you know so i can do that this is i'm not an alcoholic who needs to if i accidentally drank a 0.5 uh percent i I would avoid doing that because you really feel it but if i did accidentally drink that it wouldn't be uh it wouldn't be back to day one for me that's that's fine uh I, i never went to aa or anything like that although i understand they're great because they're free, so they're accessible to all. So they're very inclusive spaces. 
Um, I invested. I am lucky enough to have the money to invest in coaching. So that was that was my route. All right. So I'm still holding a vision for myself now. I'm really holding a vision for myself as I go forward. And the vision is an unknown vision. I have some things I want to achieve on a 10 to 20 year timeline. Um, when I get freaked out about my future and about the fact that I am focusing not on income generation in the business this year, but on doing things that I love, like my podcast um, and like um, some of the projects that I'm doing, then uh, uh, like style and beauty edit. Again, it's not going to be a huge money spinner, but it's something that I really enjoy and I want to explore. One-to-one um, -one coaching again, I'm I'm keeping that up, but you know, I might maybe looking at my prices because again, it feels out of integrity to price people out, even though, um, you know, if you do money mindset courses and things like that, they will always tell you don't reduce your prices. It's because your money mindset's off and blah, blah, blah. I just feel in sobriety that I have such a better handle on what feels right to me, even though even last week, I had a real blip in my integrity and I'm very lucky in that I have a group of, I mean, let's say five to 10 friends who I can really, really can hold the space for me. Really like really hold the space for me. They are people who understand the ways of the world, who are really good company, um, who know a manipulator, but who uh can hold all the vibes, who understand, who've got the spiritual tenacity and the psychological tenacity to be able to hold somebody in their heaviness. And we talk about this next week, Kath and I do, on the, on the podcast that we did together about, for me, the idea of heaven is that I am able to hold the vision for somebody who's in great pain and who is downloading an awful lot of negative stuff onto me and that I can even hold them in their heaviness because I have that much capacity and that much spirit and that much um, psychological um, tenacity and resilience to be able to see them in their fullness and hold that part of them that's misbehaving or hold that part of them that just requires a little bit of tending to, that just feels like heaven to me. Not Heaven is also being in a joyful situation with friends, but in this, and again, this is part of the reason why I've pulled back from coaching a little bit is this kind of good vibes only thing or like slash and burn people if they are draining you or, and so on. I have cut out some relationships from my life. But for me, that's based on uh, manipulation or uh, being used or on people um, not having an ethical alignment with what feels like integrity to me. And in sobriety, I don't, I'm not able to kind of drink it away and go, oh, never mind. And then kind of forget about it because I've got a hangover to deal with the next day. I have to deal with that and be like, really look into it. Um, but yeah, this last couple of weeks, I've 
I've been able to look and go, I was, I'm not very proud of that. And as I say, I'm just leaning out and leaning out and leaning out before I build back. So this is, this is just my experience of the last year. When I went back home this year in uh, the summer from June to July, my mum and dad had moved house into their new flat. So there was just this new energy in the place. And I just felt so happy. I was so happy seeing them happy in this new little flat that's way more manageable in this enormous hundred year old house. And I just felt very calm and well, and I had no desire to drink whatsoever. I just drank, you know, I just always have enjoy drinking non-alcoholic drinks. And I just had a real clarity around things that I can really see. Oh, I don't like that behavior. Or I see the, I see when I'm not at my best and I see why, and I see when I'm triggered or when I'm stimulated and I understand why, and I understand the family dynamic and you know, I don't get to drink it away and I don't get to say the thing. I have to say anything I want to say has to be said inside sobriety. Most people will wait to be drunk and then have a kind of drunken argument or a drunken outpouring with a with a family member or something like that. But I don't have access to that anymore. So that's really interesting as well. Um, and I really appreciated my mum and dad and I really appreciated myself. I really appreciate myself. I'm such a sweetheart and I make such big mistakes. And I really can say that in such in a very, very, very authentic and in integrity way. And I can allow myself to be loved very hard and very tenderly by the people around me. My husband has shown himself to be beyond my wildest dreams of tender and delightful and my friends, my closest friends have been absolutely unbelievable. And I've allowed myself to let that in. I still feel kind of tentative with it, but I have to just keep allowing myself to let that in, in my sobriety. So I wanted to go back to what were the three triggers of, of, of real triggers. I mean, there are so many the three triggers that brought me to deciding on that date last October. So the first trigger was I fell over on my, I'd already, I already knew before that, that things were a bit off, not a bit off, but you know, that my drinking was not in the greatest place, but we went on my friend's bachelorette party. I was the matron of honor or the maid of honor of her wedding. And so I had a role. So again, alcohol rules, for the first part of her bachelorette party, I didn't drink. There was free wine, um, but I had to kind of host an MC and call on people to make speeches and just kind of make sure that the other matrons of honor or maids of honor or bridesmaids who were helping out were okay and that we had all the stuff we needed. And so I didn't drink for the first part of that. As we were coming to the close of that two hour boat trip, I had probably one or two glasses of wine. And then as the effects of that wore off in the taxi to the next place, I can remember my friend saying to me, are you all right? Because I got really quiet, but it was because I'd had my buzz and now the buzz was dropping off. And I just said, I'm just having a bit of quiet time. Also, I'd been like emceeing and I'd been on and I'd had all this adrenaline and now that was all kind of subsiding. 
we went to the next place, a karaoke bar with an open bar. And so again, 51 years old, right? Bear this in mind. I'm not a young person. This is how, this is how um, insane an alcoholic or a binge drinking mind is, right? This is how insane it is. I said to myself, I now deserve to drink whatever I want. So rather than going, I know that I have a problem drinking, I'd had two glasses of wine. So that was enough for me to go, right, I better start topping up now. So I started drinking uh, Kier's. Kier is white wine with a shot of creme de cassis in the top. Creme de cassis is a liqueur. So that's about 20%. And wine is, of course, 14%. So it tastes like uh, pop. It tastes like Ribena or a blackcurrant drink. And it goes down really well. And so I had just kept delivering those back to myself. And I'm quite certain, knowing myself, that I would have been putting more and more cassis in as I got more and more drunk. I sang brilliantly, I might add. Um, I almost killed myself because I'm anemic and because I, because at that point I'm anemic, but I don't know how anemic I am. I'm doing Tina Turner. I'm giving it my all. Um, I'm doing that, that dance she does where she goes down and up. Uh, when I was a little girl, that one. And, um, and, and we're just having so much fun and I nearly collapse. I nearly collapse because I can't breathe, genuinely can't breathe. And I have to hand the mic over to another friend to finish off. And then we go to the next place. And at that point, I say, pack up the Ikea bags, put all the stuff in that we, you know, like photograph boards and stuff like that, that we'd made earlier on. I'm going back to my hotel. Sensible Sarah wants to go back to her hotel and read her book. I think I was reading Edward Enninful's uh, autobiography. But no, everybody's going to a Mexican bar and they said to me, come on, Sarah, you know what it's like. Everybody's drunk by this point, open bar. Come on, Sarah, it won't be the same without you. And I had had enough drinks at that point to be persuadable. But when I looked back on that, I realized that actually I was persuadable from the first glass of wine, the first sip of wine. And that's when I realized I have to stop. There is no way I can continue drinking because what happened next was everybody's drunk. So everybody's generous. And I had probably on top of two glasses of wine on the boat, probably five to six glasses of Kia in the uh, karaoke bar. And then um, so already I'm well over the binge drinking limit. Uh, I had about five extremely strong margaritas get outside. I'm carrying all the bags back to the hotel because they're all off to a strip bar and I'm not going to a strip bar. Lost my footing, fell over, hit my head on the corner of a wall, blood pouring down my face. Everybody's going drama. I'm in and out of blackout. I can remember saying to somebody, who do I trust in this circle? And I pointed to somebody and I said, look at my head. Do I need to go to hospital? Because you've got people like, ah! she's got to go to hospital oh my god it's so bad and all this because it looks terrible when you've got blood dripping into your eyes and I just thought 50 years old 51 years old this is not a good look a 51 year old woman stumbling through the streets of Tokyo a professional in an area where a lot of my clients would be um potential clients people who I sit on boards with 
um, stumbling around, cutting my head open. I mean, I could have died. That was the real wake up call for me. Then we had the wedding two weeks later and then my party one month after that. And that's when I really started to, you know, that's when I really set that date. That was the day I think I got online, searched for alcohol coach, scrolled through to find somebody who fit with me. Uh, Australia has a very similar uh, kind of drinking culture to Britain. And also there was no kind of spiritual Christian vibes going through there. Um, no offense, Christians or whatever, if you want to take offense, that that's your business, not mine. But that I just didn't want that kind of preachy, find Jesus vibe in there. Um, what I wanted was somebody who was going to be really straightforward in her marketing, Kath Elliott's marketing, really spoke to me. I booked a um, I booked a call for the day after. I, I love like this is part of being legendary as well. The legend thing is like I love having stories. So I love the idea that I booked it on that date so that I had a date to mark that was going to be one day after my 10 year anniversary, have a legendary celebration and then uh and then kick it the day after the second incident which was uh a few months early it was just before i went back for my first trip back after covid so obviously by that point we were kind of emerging from covid but kind of not i'd organized a hotel trip to a five-star hotel for loads of my friends um we went to an event there wine was flowing then of course we went to the shop and bought more wine went back to somebody's room drank 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 I blacked out I don't know what I said I know that I was aggressive that night um I must have stayed up till a ridiculous hour because I woke up the next day there was loads of missed calls on my phone checkouts at 12 o'clock it's a five-star hotel they have a delicious breakfast a swimming pool all these uh, like uh uh hot tubs all these kinds of things, spa, which I love to take advantage of when I stay there. And I woke up at a quarter to 12, missed breakfast, missed everything. 12 o'clock is checkout time. And I was absolutely so hungover. And I just knew at that point that I had misbehaved. I had no idea what had happened. I was so ashamed and so hungover. It was so bad, really bad. And I just hated it. And then I went back to the UK for a month and started to talk to my friends, two friends in particular, about how I was really concerned about my drinking. And one friend also disclosed a lot of stuff to me as well. And then the other friend, we made some, we did, we aligned, designed an alliance together for when we went to a party that we were attending for a friend's 50th um, to help me not to drink too much. And um, I managed it with her help and guidance. And it was fun. We made it fun as well. I was still at the uh, bar at closing time trying to get a double vodka, but they'd already closed, thank God, so that I could get a buzz on for the taxi home. I mean, it's just it's just beyond, isn't it? Um, and then, you know, that was the last time I uh, really drank in England, actually. So that was it was good. It was really good to kind of start to talk about it. But I knew then. And the other, the third thing was, and this was, this was the real trigger, I think, actually, was what I call the mirror. I was out and about in Tokyo at an event and I saw somebody that I know stumbling around. They were so hammered, just so hammered. Um, I saw them ordering drink after drink after drink. 
and then being kind of almost carried out. I don't know if you, you know, when people have two people on either side of them and their legs are kind of going under them like a little duck or a swan. And again, I just, I just hold that person in my heart very strongly. Um, and within 0.01 second, this thought happened. Oh my God, that is not a good look. That is, I hope they're all right. I don't think things are going very well for that person. They have a problem with their drinking and it instantly went, that's a mirror, Sarah, that's you. Don't concern yourself with that person. You are talking about you. And I think that was the the domino or there had been a lot of dominoes before, but other dominoes had been missing or something. I don't know how to play this metaphor out at all, but it was like that was a deep root that got pulled out at that point by seeing the mirror uh, in that person. And then I really, really wanted to take the action. So, yeah, so that's that's what's been going on in the last year for me and where I am now, I feel incredibly optimistic. I don't have any particular business plan, but I'm just keep saying to myself, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. I appreciate my husband so much for sticking with me and for even when I was drinking, I mean, I think he liked it sometimes. I mean, this is the thing you have these enablers around you sometimes, don't you? Because he said to me once, again, like that thing where I was talking about the legs going, we got out of a taxi once and in the taxi, I kept getting drunk. I wasn't still drinking, but I'd obviously drank enough at the place, location we were in that I kept getting drunk in the taxi. This is, I don't know, like 15 years ago or something. And my little legs were going under me and he had to help me home. And I can remember saying to him outside the house, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so drunk. And he said, it's okay, I like it. It's the only time you're ever vulnerable. <laughs> oh God. And that was a real moment for me. I mean, it was, it was really confronting as well. Cause it's like, why do I need to be vulnerable to be like, or like, why? Why does he place some value on that? Um, you know, I'd always prided myself on being a super strong woman. And if you give up drinking and you have been a problem drinker, you have to be extremely vulnerable because you have to answer a million questions about why and how's it going and judgments from people. You just have, to, I just have to accept that. I have to accept that people are going to treat me different. They're going to look down on me or they're going to think I'm looking down on them or they're going to say I've changed, which I have. I am a completely different person. I am a completely different person, totally different. I'm also the same, but I'm a different person. My tolerance for bullshit is zero, but then also not zero. Um, and also I still create some bullshit, but I'm able to look at it and deal with it. Not everybody gets access to that. Um, various things. Um, why, why are you drinking non-alcoholic beer? I, I have a, um, oh, I don't drink. And then the various things that people will talk about. And sometimes I can predict it. Like there was one guy who's a bit creepy and I knew that he would start talking about women or weight or bodies or something like that. And he did. So, you know, people will talk about that 
or they will make a story about themselves fine they will say some they will start to kind of say oh yeah I think I should stop drinking as well great um they will want to know why um so I just told one person I just I, I was out at a bar a really nice bar and one of the um, owners of the bar was sitting at our table it was like why aren't you drinking and I said oh I'm an alcoholic and he was like well if you're an alcoholic you wouldn't be drinking non-alcoholic beer and you know I smile and nod yeah that's a really good point I just don't feel like drinking tonight or something like that you know there's just a it's the same it's the same as being childless <laughs> Um, I have to be absolutely clear that anybody's response is absolutely nothing to do with me. My behavior is to do with me. If I'm poorly behaved uh, and, you know, if I play out of a trigger, then that's to do with me. But other people's reaction to my not drinking is absolutely nothing to do with me. It's just information. And I just have to decide what I what I tell people and then receive the reaction and sometimes it's like oh and sometimes it's very sweet you know people will text me about on, in April and you can find this on sarahfruya.com in the blog it's a post I'm very proud of actually I really like it I wrote kind of an essay about six months sober on six months sober and thank god I didn't uh <laughs> to tell you thank god i didn't uh publish the uh sober uh two months sober thing because it was absolutely unbelievable um but yeah so um i wrote a great um a great piece i'm really really happy to 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 say that and i would say go and have a look at it and i got a lot of response from that from people some people say i think i should i think maybe i should do this uh or i'm a bit worried about my drinking too to just like i'm really proud of what you've written or that was very well written or something like that and that was six months ago and things are different now right things are different now for me as well Oh, here we go. I have been sober for 2.5 months. I'm just going to read a little bit of this. At the time of writing, I've been sober for 2.5 months. I was going to pub publish this, but another part of me just went, no, girl, no. And she was right. <laughs> sober, not having a break, not dry January, not an incredible marketing opportunity to show how good I am at this thing, not a coaching business challenge, not sober October, not pregnant, not a period of time where I update my thirsty fans on how much energy I have, how full of clarity I am, how my skin glows. My skin does glow, by the way, loads of people have said that to me, but then people would say that to me when I had a hangover as well. So I think I've just got good skin. I've got good genes in that regard. Plus I've, I come from an income bracket where I've been able to afford nice creams since I was quite young. So not the top creams, but I'm talking about boots stuff, you know? So, you know, sweet Jesus, I started drinking when I was 15. Now for 2.5 months sober, I'm ready to experience the joy of sober, blah, blah, blah. I haven't lost weight, three kilograms maybe recently. And that's probably because I just my, my appetites have changed um, eating wise. Um, I don't require as much sugar to compensate for alcohol. 
And when I was drinking, you crave sugar because you deplete your body, even though you're drinking loads of carbohydrates. Um, oh my God, there was just so much. Um, yeah, so much stuff. <laughs> I can't, oh God, there's just so, oh my God, just so much, so much stuff about being sober in here. So, and in journals, and it was hard, really hard. The first three months was horrifying. The second three months were difficult. Um, I cut a couple of ties, which also meant cut it, which also put my business in jeopardy. But again, I just didn't feel like maintaining relationships that felt, um, um, unpleasant or out of integrity just for the sake of a business tie. And that might sound a bit immature, but actually it, it's, it, it's really impossible for me to behave out of integrity. No, that's not true. I have behaved out of integrity, but I quickly notice it. Um, and, um, I will at some point build back, but it's going to be different and in a different land and in a different way. And yeah, I just have to keep holding that vision for myself, which is something that Kath Elliott will talk about next week. I have to keep talking about it, keep holding the vision for myself. Yeah. So super proud of me. Um, so yeah. My origins as a drinker are, as I mentioned earlier, at the age of 14, I found this thing that made me feel a sense of belonging, a sense of relief. It was a tonic to the turmoil that I was feeling. And um, my body has a very high tolerance for drinking. I don't throw up. I don't fall asleep. Um, and sadly, I black out with my husband. He, he falls asleep after one drink now because <laughs> he stopped drinking a lot with me along with me um or he throws up after if he drinks like three or four drinks he will throw up i never did never did my brother's the same um both of us just have this kind of viking capacity uh, which sounds great doesn't it but it's not it's really not so we can just poison our bodies uh for ages with loads and loads of alcohol and not have a stop button yeah and even at 15, I got taken to hospital from a party, had my stomach pumped because I had just drank so much. Um, but again, that made me legendary at school. It became, you know, part of the legend and myth of our school, the legend and myth of me. And then that continued into university, the, you know, the 1990s. I lived a, a full 1990s life. So it wasn't just drinking then. It was, you know, all the accoutrements of the 1990s life, dancing all night, raving, uh, going to concerts, all that kind of stuff. And I had huge appetites. Luckily, I had a, a danger switch in my head that told me, not to get too far, like I was never going to become a coke addict or a heroin addict. I say never. That's, you know, the famous last words, because there was something in my brain that told me to stop before I got there. But with the drinking, it just went on and on and on and on. I had jobs that also um, 
you know, in the first half of the 90s when I was at university and just post-university when I was between uh, professional jobs, um, I was waitering, um, I worked in pubs. I eventually started to run pubs because I went on the graduate training scheme of one of the biggest breweries in the UK. So, um, you know, part of that graduate training scheme was running pubs. And then I went and ran independent pubs and restaurants for a while. So I was constantly in this loop until I decided to get out of that world and start and went into management in the telecommunications industry. And then I moved to Japan and Japan just affords you this endless university life unless you're a professional. I mean, even people with kids, it doesn't stop people with kids um, from like just continuing on this constant, constant um, kind of endless university teenage life. And that's what I was doing. I was drinking like I was still at university. Worse, in fact, because I've got more money. So. Um, and because you attract and find all the people who are still doing that. And, you know, obviously COVID really hit hard. Um, I took on, I was, I was very proud to be able to say at the beginning of COVID, I'm going to hold steadfast and strong and sensible and, um, be that strong, steady voice for my clients um, some of whom's businesses took off during that time, others whose businesses were destroyed, people who had, you know, kids at home, um, people whose parents were sick, all kinds of things um, were happening during COVID. And I just decided to take all that on, but I wasn't looking after myself properly at the same time. So when we emerged from that, I just went wild. Um, my drinking got completely out of control. And I didn't go home to England for two and a half years. So I didn't even see any of the people who love me unconditionally for two and a half years. And, you know, that's really tough. That's really tough. So, you know, a combination of all these things brought me to where I am now. And I'm so glad and I'm so proud. And this gets to be who I am now. And next week on the podcast, I'm so thrilled to be introducing you to Kath and I'm so thrilled for you to hear her story and the information that she has to bring to the table about binge drinking, about the connections with breast cancer, um, which is her area of expertise and her area of activism and advocacy. And also her as a coach, um, she doesn't coach me live on air, thank God. But um, yeah, so here I am, one year sober, very excited. I'm dealing with everything I need to deal with, psychologically and physically. Um, I'm having a big thing happen towards the end of the year. Uh, I'll be having a surgery towards the end of the year because now that I'm sober, I'm dealing with all the physical symptoms that are holding me back. So I feel very healthy. Um, and I, I don't know that I feel healthy exactly, but I feel well. I feel well fed. Um, I feel detoxified. I feel um, psychologically capable of just 
telling the truth and dealing with all the things that need to be dealt with. Um, maybe some kind of fitness will come later. Um, I may be asked to try and reduce my uh, size before surgery. Um, let's see what they say. They may not say that as well, which I'm very happy to do. And um, I am, I'm in a really interesting and good place. Um, when I misbehave, I catch it very quickly and I admit to it, not to everybody, nobody needs to know the details, but to the, the people closest to me. Um, I'm able to hold friends very tenderly and close and um, I have an enormous capacity for them. My coaching has changed, but actually I'm in a lineage for coaching. So the, the techniques remain the same, but the way that I coach is different. Um, I am so um, aware that I want to build my capacity for people to be able to hold visions for them and and sit with them. And I'm not about to become an advocate for um, non-alcoholic lifestyle, but I can see a place for me in all of this for people who have already stopped drinking to bring more joy and options to their lives in the social world. That's something I would love to do. And um, yeah, still coaching. If you would like to be coached by me, I have absolutely loads of experience. I've been coaching since 2005 here in Japan and in earnest the last 10 years um I've been running these one-to-one -one groups for the last eight years and many of the super successful people you see in Tokyo will have been through my programs and are still in my programs um I understand the corporate world from the outside and I've coached people at all levels of that and I'm so fascinated by the the um the complexities and the supply chains and the the levels uh, of, of engagement that one needs to be in in the corporate world and also small businesses too and individual people as well who are trying to get their lives together. Really, really understand neurodiversity at a grassroots level, but also I've been really studying that and understand the differences that people who have neurodiversities need not even if they're diagnosed, I can just sometimes tell that people do things in a different way and feel things in a different way and have different kinds of executive functions that will require me not to ram the usual kind of process orientation down people's throats, but work with their strengths. And so, yeah, one-to-one -one coaching is open. If you're interested, get in touch. I do a free 30-minute session for anybody who's interested. It's called a discovery call. And I want you to know that this has been life-changing, but in ways that I never, ever, ever imagined. And one of the things that Kath says next week is it's amazing what we can't imagine for ourselves. I, I just can't, I'm so excited by that because I have goals. I have big, hairy, audacious goals and I have wildly improbable goals, but what I can't imagine for myself, what is it that I can't imagine for myself? What is a vision that a friend holds for me? Oh, it makes me feel so emotional thinking about it. What is the vision that you can't, 
even see for yourself that somebody else is holding for you. Oh, it's so exciting to imagine that. And that's what I do for my clients when they tell me what they want. I imagine beyond that to a place where I can't even imagine. And I hold that vision for them because so many things are possible. I'm not saying that everything is possible. I'm not saying that nothing is possible. Um, I'm not saying you should slash and burn through your friends. Um, and I'm not saying that you should give up alcohol. If you have, I hold a very special place for you. If you have recovered from an eating disorder or an addiction or anything like that, there's a there's a place in my heart for you. And if you are in the midst of wild addictions like those those addictions, any addiction, I hold a special place in my heart for you because it's so hard to live in such a web of um, constructions and scaffolding that holds, you know, our fragile psyches together. It's a, it's a lot. It's, it's, it takes a lot to do that. And then to, to pull back from that. And I can hold those things if you want a coach who's got a real professional bent, but also can hold a vision for you. I will not take on a coaching client who I don't think is a good fit. I will not. Um, Tokyo's leading therapist will tell you that because she's got a pipeline from me to her. <laughs> um, I just won't. And... I really, really love what I do and I'm very careful to keep working with people who whose lives will be elevated by coaching and who I can help. And nobody needs to stop drinking to be with me and I'm not going to preach to you at all. I may mention something, <laughs> but, you know, that's it's a tender spot. This is my life. This is my way. This is my route. As I'm talking, I'm so proud of myself and I'm so grateful to the people around me who have been amazing. I would, I would mention names besides Kath, besides Catherine Elliott, my alcohol mindset coach, but I, um, I might miss somebody out and that would break my heart but I want you to know that if you have been anybody who's been listening to my bullshit for the last year and you're still with me and you're still here and you've been able to hold that space for me and you're still, you're still with me. Like that's you. That's, that's you. If you know some of my insides the last year, thank you. Thank you so much. You just cannot imagine that you have saved a life. You have saved a life. And the joy and happiness that I feel in those moments when I feel like deep satisfaction and contentment, you are, you know, you, you, you have a stake in that. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to myself for recognizing and taking this action. And thank you, thank you, thank you to those people who stay with me. You're so welcome to come to my house where I will serve champagne, uh, aperitifs, um, wine, fine wines and nightcaps. 
You do not have to monitor your drinking around me at all. I'm good. I'm not an alcoholic in that way that I'm tempted, but I might drop out. <laughs> I probably won't be sitting up till 4am in a hotel room with you anymore. <laughs> and thank God, because there are many ways to lead a life and that's not the way I want to lead mine from now on. Um, and I, everybody has stories and I want to tell them and I want to create these legends around us and these myths around our lives and tell them. And I hope that today you've enjoyed listening to my journey of the last year. I know it's gone on for a little while, but um, I just, um, I just have enjoyed telling this story so much and listening to myself tell it. Um, I am so insanely happy to be here and to be marking this year I'm excited about what happens in the future for me I'm really excited for you to listen to my podcast with Kath next week where you will learn so much about another person who has um, emerged from binge drinking and I hope you go over to sarahfaruya.com and listen to other podcasts that I've done the legends podcast series is just so ace there's so many people in it who have told so many stories over the last five years and um, from the project I did with Kyle McCloskey the videographer at the beginning to now and all of it is to enhance people's lives with these legends these stories these all different ways to be in the world and lead a life I have no interest in talking to people who are exactly the same as me and I only choose people who I feel are ready and who will tell their stories with deep authenticity, but also have a boundary around how much they'll tell um, and um, and who aren't going to be trying to kind of sell me something, even though they're allowed to sell things. <laughs> it's always, um, I just know, I know who, who the right people are and, um, and, you know, when I haven't followed that, it's, it hasn't turned out well. Um, you wouldn't hear those because they don't get put out. <laughs> but um, yeah, please do listen to it. And on this theme of addiction, um, there's probably going to be more in the future on this. Um, but yeah, take a listen, enjoy. If you want some coaching, get in touch with me. If you're interested in style and beauty, get in touch. Um, a clothes swap will be coming up in the winter season. And I deeply love you and I'm holding a vision for you. And I hope that you can hold a vision for me. I'm Sarah Ferruya from Sarah Ferruya Coaching and SF Creative. And please take care. Like and subscribe and drop us a rating. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to these creative musings and stories of reinvention. And if it's guests week, Big love and gratitude to our guests. Go follow them everywhere. Shout out to Laura Maroshima for her podcast management and support. I would love if you would follow and subscribe this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and share with a friend.
you think would love or benefit from it. You can also find me at Sarah Brewer Creative on Facebook and Instagram and get on my occasional, very occasional newsletter list at sarahbrewer.com. I just love that you're here and I'll catch you the next time on the Legends podcast. Rise like a phoenix, baby. And don't forget to take other people with you. Bye.